0: Hi, this is Cory Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and welcome to another episode of the Silmarillion Seminar.
1: Hello everyone, my name is Joe Stoll, and welcome to another episode of the Silmarillion Seminar. In this episode, we come to the end of the most tragic of tales in the Silmarillion of Turin-Turambar. Within this episode, we cover a multitude of subjects. They are all mostly depressing and heavy topics, but here are a few. We discuss the Eye of the Dragon. How much power and foresight do Glorang and Morgoth really have? Findoulos, is she Turin's love or strictly a saving grace? Who's driving the crazy train of fate in this tragic tale? Why are the elves so fascinated with this story? Is there a redeeming value in Turin's incestuous relationship with Nienor? And why is Turin among the elf friends of old? This and more within this episode, the title of which is Now Comes the Night.
0: Okay. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the third installment of Turin Turin Bar. The unexpected third installment. I had only planned for two, but we're doing three. And speaking of things that I hadn't planned for, uh, sorry for the late start this evening. We had some technical difficulties. My normal, uh, mic headset that I use was, is for some reason not responding tonight. Uh, so we're kind of, uh, Winging it with other equipment here tonight. Um, so again, my apologies for the technical difficulties that had, uh, uh that have delayed us. And we want to get, uh, get back straight into the depression if we possibly can, because we have a, a good deal more tour and tour and bar to talk about tonight. Um, now the main focus of our discussion tonight, I want to start, uh, by discussing Glaurung the dragon. We talked about the fall of Nargothrung of Nargothrond last time, but we didn't get too much into Glaurung himself, um, so I want to I start with Glaurung and look at um, both what he does with Turin and what he does with Nianor, um, and we won't jump ahead to his death yet. Let's just sort of look at his uh, his interactions with the characters and what he's doing there. Then we'll look at uh, sort of Turin's choices and then the career of Nianor. And then finally, the death, of, the death of the worm and everybody's suicide and everything else. So uh, so this will, this will this will certainly be fun. Um, so uh, let's, start with, let's start with Glaurung. I know, uh, John, you had a couple uh, Glaurung-related questions, I think, that you wanted to begin with. Are you able to get to your mic there, John? Hey, can you hear me? Yep. Okay, good,
2: good. Well, the first... Of uh, many little subtopics, I wanted to address was the eyes of the dragon. Now, um, I believe that there's a lot of discussion online and on other media about the dragon spell. And I, I'm not quite sure where Tolkien was coming from in earlier writings. I mean, my best interpretation of it came through uh, Smaug, of course, in The Hobbit. But um, in terms of the actual eyes and how that all works out, especially with the way Leonor is entranced, and the way Turin is entranced, is quite different. Uh, I, I love the description that Tolkien gives about when Turin um, is kind of caught under the spell, how he almost beholds himself misshapen in image, as though he builds a reflection of himself, which he doesn't exactly really, really like. Um, just to move on to my next point really quickly, which is related, I was wondering whether this was,
3: as a result, of um, the dragon being a minor spirit entrapped,
2: basically almost in the flesh, um, which would be created by Mordegoth, or I shouldn't say created, but maybe adapted in some shape or form. Um, I mean, we kind of really get very vague descriptions regarding the origins of dragons. We know from one fact that Mordegoth does not have an air force. He does not have creatures who fly. And when we have uh, characters like, you know, the dragons, like Glaurung in particular, we see that rule slightly broken, but that inspiration I think you mentioned earlier might have even come from the eagles. So if this power is therefore borrowed from earlier inspiration, clearly the ability to entrance someone with such you know, force is not originated in its evil sense, but has been twisted to evil. And therefore I, I come to the point that perhaps maybe the idea of how Melian almost calms down situations and Menegorov and uh, Bodiov, we basically see her basically looking into Turin, and be- not Turin, I mean um, Hurin later on after the end of the story and saying, you know, you are seeing through Morgoth's eyes, you have basically um, upbraided your own friends. So the way that same power is being, I would say, placed on the situation or adapted, I think is quite by interesting. I have a few other points about Azaghal and basically the way dragons would be defeated, et cetera, but we can come back to those later, just you know, keep those in mind. All right, that's uh, it for the Eyes of the Dragon sequence. Great, John. Now,
0: those, really, right, no, those, really, those are really great points, and I think that there's some, there's some really important stuff there. Um, let me just kind of talk about a few of those things. Um, and other people want to, want to chip in on some of these things. Uh, go ahead and raise your hands and I'll, I'll, I'll call on you to add to some of this stuff too. Um, first, uh, it's important to remember Glaurong himself does not fly. Uh, he is not a winged dragon. I know that often when we picture dragons, uh, you know, winged dragons are very, um, are very, and natural, I mean, that's what we, that's what we sort of think of and assume. But, uh, but Glaurung was definitely not. The winged dragons come in later. We'll meet the winged dragons at the very, very end of the first stage in the final battle is the only time we get winged dragons. We'll see dragons again in the sack of Gondolin, but there's no, uh, but even there, those dragons don't have wings. They are land bound dragons. Um, now, uh the other the business about the the nature of the dragons in that line, John, I think the the passage you're remembering um is on page two thirteen. The very first time we hear Glaurung speak, uh when he speaks to Turin, um is at the end of the last full paragraph on two thirteen. Then suddenly he spoke by the evil spirit that was in him, saying, Hail, son of Hurin, well met. And I think that we get a pretty clear glimpse here that um <laughs> everyone in the text chat is uh taunting me for my glaurung voice. I love the glaurung voice. Uh, you gotta give glaurung. Glaurung has to have a really creepy voice. I don't feel like I can even do a creepy enough glaurung voice. But anyway. Um uh so he's speaking by the evil spirit that was in him. And I, I do think um John is right to recall the eagles here, and I think that um you know, there we, we spoke for a while about that back in the Aule and Yavana chapter, uh, in, near the beginning of the Quenta, where we saw that, that, you know, that spirits were going to come from the outside and were going to take on form, were going to be given form. So we have with the eagles and apparently we were told the Ents, or at least the first Ents, um, are, uh, anyway, So th- those, th- th- those, those creatures were, um, you know particularly the eagles were going to be spirits which were housed in um uh spirits that were housed in in animal bodies basically um but they're not just animals that have been promoted uh you know they are they are uh they are merely sort of the instruments or vehicles of these of these spirits and they're you know they, w- with the eagles it's good spirits and uh with the dragons it's Uh, it's, it's evil spirits. So I think when we have, you know, the effect of the eyes of Glaurung, the, 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 the way in which he is clearly able to exert power, um, in his will over Turin and over Nienor, um, it's, it's, it's pretty clear that he has the kind of power that, that, that other Maya have and that he clearly is, uh, um, he clearly is a Maya in uh, in that way, though, again, exactly what the nature is, exactly how it worked, what is the, you know, for instance, you know, compare and contrast the dragons with the Astari, for instance, you know, wh- who are also Maya who are uh, incarnated in bodies. You know, are dragons like that? Uh, you know, it's it's kind of hard to say. A lot of these things, uh, Tolkien never really fully uh, worked out. So, you know, I think that, um, you know, basically we have to be, uh, basically willing to not know all of this stuff because we don't um, we don't have very full information. But it is very clear that the dragon is not just. A really big monster, like a, you know, a, a, a kind of animal that 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 Morgoth has bred. There's clearly more to him than that. Mike, what were you going to say?
4: Up on the uh, conversation on the eye, I I noted the lidless eye uh, reminded me of how Sauron is described in Lord of the Rings, and you know, the lidless eye is meant to describe his sort of ability to keep watch over his empire, you know, across vast distances, but also the lidless eye is referred to when you're brought before him individually, that lidless eye will pierce you and and sort of enter your mind and be able to sort of tear you apart from the inside out sort of mentally. And I think that Glaurung's lidless eye has that same sort of power as well.
0: Yeah, no, and I think it's it's an important thing to remember because I do think that the eye of Sauron is something that can really help us to understand Glaurung here. Um, and, and that's, be- and this is something that I think gets a little bit lost um, in the way that the films sort of physicalized or, you know, made literal, uh, the depiction of the Eye of Sauron, that is with the, you know, the big flaming eye at the top of the tower, uh, leading many people in the post-film era to, you know, continue asking questions like, is Sauron really physically in the form of a huge flaming eyeball? Um, to which the answer is no. Um, but, uh, but basically, when you look at the way that Sauron and the Eye of Sauron are discussed in The Lord of the Rings, um, you know, you've got that moment where Frodo says there is an eye in it, you know, or, or rather a seeing mind. Um, you know, and this is where uh, there are several things that are described that way, not just Sauron. Um, um, so uh, Sam talks about the, the watchers and, and the, the Tower of Cirith Ungol that way also. Um, so anyway, there's, there's, um, there's, the eye is connected and you think of, of how the eye of Sauron operates when we see it operating. Galadriel talks about it, that he is trying his, his will his, is trying to sort of to penetrate her defenses and to see her and to lay bare her own soul and her own plans and her own mind. But still the way is shut, she says, raising her hands up in defiance. Um, and, you know, we get similarly remember especially that moment with Frodo when he's wearing the ring on Amon Hen, and he is on the seat of seeing, and he's looking around. Um, so he also is kind of casting his own will and his own attention around. Um, and the eye of Sauron comes and seeks towards him, and it's trying to find him and to lay him bare, Mike, exactly as you were saying. Um, and also, Mike, you're also sort of Quoting or half quoting from the threat that the, the Lord of the Nazgul makes to Eowyn, right? That, uh, you know, your soul shall be left naked before the lidless eye. Um, you know, that there is a sense of that, that even that is sort of punishment in itself. Um, but, but anyway, so I mean, th- that is the will of the creature, the will of Sauron, the will of Glaurung are clearly articulated sort of th- through the eyes, that the gaze of Glaurung is about him exerting his will over his victim. So when Nienor and first Turin look him in the eyes, um, Turin, after 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 saying his name, after revealing himself, then they basically are laid open to his will, and he overpowers them. And here I think, and I, I think I quoted this last week, and then coming back to, to John's first point, that is the relationship between Smaug and Glaurung, which is certainly a really good comparison to make. Um, there are really three major dragons that we get to meet and spend any time with in Tolkien's writings. Um, he was very fond of dragons, but there are only really three that get enough actual time in the narrative for us to get to know them at all and see how they operate. And that's Smaug and Glaurung. And then the third being Chrysophilax Dives and Farmer Giles of Ham. Um, but, uh, but anyway, Smaug, is we are told in the hobbit has rather an overwhelming personality and we can certainly see Glaurung with his personality completely overwhelming both turin and neanor uh neanor to the extent of completely well not completely but at least temporarily purging her mind um which is uh, a pretty remarkable uh overload that he that he does uh to her but um um but yes, and then sort of John, the last point that you make, which I think is really good, that he's he he does twist Turin's outlook. You know, and Turin realizes this, that he he has been manipulated. Um and Glaurung doesn't just lie to him. Glaurung doesn't uh, he does lie to him, um, but that's not all that he does. It's not just that he deceives him and makes him to believe the deception, but rather he he twists his whole perception of things. He knows what he should do. I mean, Turin is still at the point. Nargothrond has fallen. It seems like everything is over, but we remember, if we remember Gwyndor's prophecy, things are not over. Turin might possibly still have a happy ending if he rescues Finduilas. And we just saw her paraded by, captured by the orcs as Turin is standing there. Overwhelmed by, by Glaurung. Now, we have still the chance. If he were to, because I mean, we know that they don't kill her right away. They don't kill her till they get all the way up to Brethel. So, he has the chance. If he, if instead of going up back to Hithlam, back to Dor um, instead he pursued the orcs just like Beleg pursued the orcs that had captured him and came upon them in the night and, and rescued her like he was rescued by Beleg. Okay. Hopefully not exactly like he was rescued by Beleg, but, um, but anyway, it, 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 theoretically, if, if the prophecy of Gwyndor is correct, maybe he would have had a happy ending. It's still within his grasp. So the final moment, um, how Glaurung seals his doom is by twisting his perceptions and playing on his own fears and on his own, even like, self-loathing, um, to convince him to go up to Hithlam, to go back to Dor and to try to rescue his family, who of course are not there. Um, so that's really the moment when everything, when everything kind of comes down. So I think that, uh, John, that idea of, of the dragon twisting things and, 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 and warping his perception, certainly Neonor gets warped also later on. Um, yeah. Other, other thoughts on Glaurung? My big question that I had is, what is he doing? What's Glaurung's plan? Um, what are your thoughts about that? That is, you know, he's, he's not just out to cause all the trouble he can. Um, you know, he seems to have a strategy. It seems to be a fairly ornate strategy. Um, he has a couple chances to kill Turin and doesn't do it. Obviously that backfires on him personally, but, uh, Dave, go ahead.
5: I was going to start by saying that he appears to be kind of just a nihilist who's, kind of out to, seems to be out to destroy everything. But if you're talking his plan with regard to Turin, I have no idea how much um, uh, foresight we're supposed to attribute to him and presumably Morgoth. Presumably he's carrying out Morgoth's will. Maybe we can attribute a lot of foresight to Morgoth. But, I mean, if you look at everything that Turin accomplishes um, uh, this um, chapter, he destroys, Nor- you know, he helps helps Nargothrond be destroyed. He um, allows Beleg to be, you know, or he kills Beleg. Um, uh, You could argue that some of the events in this chapter set in motion um, the eventual downfall of Doriath. So, you know, I have no idea if we should attribute the kind of foresight um, required to know that if they tug Turin strings the right way that all of these things would happen. But if we if if we imagine that, that that's the case, um, there's certainly a lot of things that happen in this chapter as a result of Turin's bad decisions. That uh, you would that you can certainly imagine that Morgoth, at a minimum, was not sorry to see happen. You know what I mean? And uh, it's entirely possible that they, if, even if they didn't know specifically that these things would happen, they knew that the Turin was trouble from the get go, and that they. A lot more evil would be accomplished by leaving him in play uh, and just um, pointing him in the right direction and manipulating him here and there rather than just killing him right. um, outright from the get-go.
0: Right? Yeah. You, you, uh, I don't
5: know. Do you, so, so what do you think? Like, Do you think we're supposed to attribute that sort of foresight to Morgoth? Or did, did they just have a vague feeling that this guy looks like he's bad news. Let's uh, let's let's let him be and just kind of push him this way and that way and hope that he fouls things up. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point, Joe. You should you should raise your hand.
0: Yeah, it it really is a cunning strategy, right? Like you know, just wind Turin up and let him go, and he's guaranteed to wreck everything, right? What what more devious strategy could you possibly come up with? But yeah, Joe, go ahead and and, uh, and say that out loud that you were just typing about.
6: All right, well, uh, now I was gonna say it's. A- Pretty much the same thing they do with Fanor. I mean, uh, <clears throat> Morgoth kind of seeded lies, and he let Fanor's uh, own pride kind of take off and <laughs> did better than Morgoth probably could have ever done on his own, really. But uh, it's just kind of their own greatness was their fault, and it was their pride that got in the way sometimes.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is certainly true. Th- that, that's a really a fantastic example. Could Morgoth have done more harm to uh, to Valinor? than Feanor accomplished. I mean, would he on his own, had he just been acting in his own person through his own power, could he have come to Valinor and managed to separate one of the three kindreds of the elves completely from them and and sort of have them outcast from Valinor? I You know, it's hard to see him having accomplished more than he ended up accomplishing, as you said, Joe, by sowing lies. Um, so yeah, I do think that we... Uh, I do think that we see him manipulating other people and you and leading them to make the kind of bad choices which not only will have other bad results that he would like, but also um manage to have these people destroy themselves as well. Um this he knows that this is sort of how this works. He knows that this is uh um that this this is a way to get results. Um, but, you know, Dave, coming back to your other... to your other, Because your question is a really good one. When you look at the plot um, of the Turin-Turin bar story, especially the second half of it, especially after Glaurung comes in, you know, we're told right after Turin takes off, um, when Glaurung releases him... Um, We've got, uh, let's see, yeah. Um, but Turin passed away. This is the bottom of page 214. But Turin passed away on the northward road, and Glaurung laughed once more, for he had accomplished the errand of his master. Um, now, accomplished the errand of his master suggests that he is... He, you know, he he was given a task, that this is what he was supposed to do, that, I mean, I, you know, I, I can't really reconstruct the dialogue and, uh, and imagine, you know, like the, the, the standing orders that, uh, that Morgoth gave to, to Glaurung, if you find Turin, manipulate him, and, you know, send him back home. I don't know what exactly the orders were, but it does seem that like he's acting under orders. He's not just winging it there. And then, if we remember back to a previous passage um, that we talked about on our first week on, of Turin-Turinbar, this, uh, you may remember, is when Turin and Beleg are in Ruth and, uh, you know, they're starting to do well, and uh, um, and... Everything is—they're—they're you know, they're managing to, to to control the lands there, and they're becoming more famous, and all of the orcs fear them, and we get that—that that transition that we had a little style time discussion of before on page two o five. Who knows now the councils of Morgoth. Who can measure the reach of his thought? Who had been Melkor, mighty among the Ainur of the Great Song, and sat now a dark lord upon a dark throne in the north, weighing in his malice all the tidings that came to him, and perceiving more of the deeds and purposes of his enemies than even the wisest of them fared, save only Melian the queen. Um. So, you know, who now knows the council of Morgoth? I think that does sort of open the door for us to imagine that he is actively manipulating this story. It seems such an unusual story. Um It seems that... I mean, if you think about what happens, you know, you think about the story that Glaurung helps to to orchestrate. It's so unlikely. I mean, you've got let's set Turin loose and send him up to the north. He doesn't know he's going to come back and live in the, fo- and take up you know, his new home in the forest of Brethil, does he? And so he doesn't know he's going to meet Nienor. I mean, what are the odds that Nienor is going to be there on that hill? I mean, surely she's going to do this smart thing and stay in Doriath where she's safe, right? And then but no, she comes out and so, so so okay, so I'm going to give her amnesia and let her loose in the woods um, because then certainly she will meet Turin and 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 fall in love with him and they'll have an incestuous marriage. Like, How could Glaurung have foreknown that? It seems like such an unlikely and convoluted plot um, that, you know, David always makes me ask exactly the question you had. What, is this really? Did Morgoth have that in mind? Like he really knew all that stuff was going to happen? Um, but you know i think that if we remember this um i, I think that uh, you know that is you know who knows now the counsels of morgoth we have to recognize that it's at least conceivable um you know that he actually is manipulating these things and we look when we remember of course his words to hurin and his promises to to curse hurin and his whole family um we know that he's uh, that he's exerting some effort at this joe all right, just
6: kinda of rolling with the same thought. Um perhaps after some of the events that have uh taken place, like since Glarong did that and he sent Neonora on her crazed way, uh just you know, there's always a the bigger plan in play, even over top of Morgoth's curse, there's the Louvre's were working as well and I mean, imagine the wreckage that Glorong could have caused if he was still alive somewhere. Yeah. And um I mean just maybe it was the only way. Um I mean, that's just uh, it's a different way to look at it because who knows <laughs> what really happened. But, and Tolkien left that up to us to decide, which is wonderful. So, but I think that's just another way to look at it. I mean, yeah, there's evil things that work too, but through that and through everything else, as I said at the beginning, things more beautiful will eventually come through.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that that is really important to remember. When you look at, you know, by not killing Turin, when Turin is standing right there in front of him. And as far as we can see, you know, most likely, although he praises Turin's valor, uh, it seems pretty likely that Glaurung is going to kill him um, if they actually fight head-to-head there in Nargothrond. Um, So by not killing him, Glaurung is bringing about more evil than just the destruction of Turin. But, of course, he also brings about his own destruction, as we shouldn't be surprised to see, having looked at this... Pattern in evil creatures all the way through. So, Joe, I I agree. You know, one of the things about Turin that I find most interesting in retrospect, especially at the references to Turin in The Lord of the Rings, because there are a couple references to Turin in The Lord of the Rings, which remember. When The Lord of the Rings was published, no one knew who Turin was, or very, maybe five people in the world knew who Turin was, because The Silmarillion had not been published, nor any of the other uh, versions of the Turin story that, that Tolkien had been working on. Um, and he gets referred to a couple times. And one of the most puzzling is when Elrond mentions him, mentions him right at the end of the Council of Elrond, when Frodo volunteers to take the ring to Mount Doom and Elrond is heaping praise upon him and saying that he would be that that he he is he has earned a place among the the greatest of the elf friends and the ones that he lists the elf friends like the you know the elf friend hall of fame uh shortlist that Elrond lists uh are Baron and hurin and turin Those are the three that he mentions. And like, okay, Baron, yeah, yeah, okay. And, uh, and Hurin, whoa, yeah, sure, he's pretty awesome. Turin, really? Uh, I mean, really? I guess. Uh, but, but he's, yeah, and, and but it's important, you know, Joe, as you say, the destruction of Glaurung is a big deal. The The, the, the solo destruction, the solo killing of Glaurung is one of the greatest single feats Performed by any hero in any of these stories, um, Dave. Go ahead.
5: Yeah, but I mean, I suppose we could. Maybe, maybe the the the, the argument is, well, Glauron um, would have managed to destroy Nargothrond. Eventually, without Turin's help and all the other horrible things that occurred because of Turin, well, that probably was all do, deemed to happen. So, on balance, when you when you work out all the math, his his overall influence was good. He mostly did good things. I mean, <laughs> come on now.
0: No, 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 like, no.
5: Like, okay, I'm wrong, and that is a great act, and and uh, and all that, but I mean, I don't know, sometimes the whole, well, everything worked out according to Luvatar's will, and it's all for the greater good and a greater story, so the fact that Vindulos got pinned to a tree with a spear, and all the people were let out, killed, or let out into slavery, and all that, it was it's all for the good in the long run, sometimes that rings a little hollow to me, and that's one of those cases, this is one of those cases where it's like, on the whole, I mean, really? Do we really think that Turin was mostly mostly a, a good good thing for the world of Middle-earth, and most of the le- the legacy of his works were mostly positive? Uh, yes. Dave, I'm sorry. I have to cut in. I have to cut in, Dave. I have to
3: cut in. <laughs> Remember at the beginning it said, evil will be good to have been, and yet remain evil.
6: It doesn't mean it was the best thing that happened, but still, good to have been, but yet remain evil. So no, it wasn't great, but because... You want to you want to do a debate on this? So I'm I'm
5: biting. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I I think that's fair enough, but I think that's also different than saying that you know in the end it was good. You know, it was good for Turin to have been and to have done everything that he did. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I understand. I think there's a nuance, and I, and I, and I'm not going so far as to say, like, well, it would have been better if Turin had never been born. And on the whole, he was just a jerk who screwed everything up, even though he certainly appears that way. But I, but I, at the same time. I think you have to be very careful in saying that, like, you know, hey, well, it was all good in the long run because that skirts over a whole lot of suffering and misery and a lot of people who, from their particular point of view, say, Dulas or Neonor, who probably look and say, like, I'm not sure I'm really seeing the big picture here, guys. Pinned to this tree with a spear through
7: my chest.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Nick, do you want to get in on this?
7: Um, actually, I had had a slightly different topic. Uh, we, we can wait. Okay.
0: All right. Well, then hang on a second. I want to I want to respond to Dave here because I think that actually, you know, the, the story of Turin Turambar is for me like the test case of that entire theory. If you're gonna, um, if you're gonna say that that evil shall be good to have been, then this is the place where you have to see it, <laughs> where you have to be able to uh, to see it happening. That is, if you can't make it work for Turin and Turinbar, it, it it sort of breaks the mold. But at the same time, I think that it's really easy to be too sort of short-sighted in trying to see that. That is, um, some people will really oversimplify Tolkien's stories um, you know the reaction that some people have who just really don't read Tolkien carefully at all is to say, well, everything is so simple. Everything is so black and white. You've got the really, really bad guys and the really, really good guys, uh, and everything is really simplistic. And of course, as, as all of you guys know who read Tolkien carefully, that's completely not true. There's almost no character who's just purely good um, and who never struggles with anything and who doesn't experience temptation and everything else. Um, he's actually really, really good at showing the very gradual steps um, like with Boromir, for instance, between a, a good guy who goes wrong. Um, now, at the same time, um, the, when you come to this question, the question of evil and the and the depiction of evil, and you know, if he's gonna say, oh, hey, the whole universe is rosy, in fact, everything works out for good according to Iluvatar's good plan, um If he were, if Tolkien were as simplistic as uh, those people take him to be, then what would happen is we'd see everything coming good. We'd see in all stories, what Sam feels like is happening to him when he wakes up on the field field of Cormel, and that is that everything sad is going to come untrue. Of course he knows that everything sad isn't going to come untrue. Um in fact, one thing that's really interesting um and sometimes easy to forget in that moment, um, when we're caught up in the middle of this sort of this so kind of growing crescendo of happy endings uh, and of celebrations that we get in the return of the king after the destruction of the ring. Um, but it isn't true that everything sad has come untrue. As soon as Sam says that, he looks over at Frodo and sees Frodo's hand with the finger bitten off. Um, that is, he's not... Um things are not just fine. Frodo is still maimed. And of course, we know from the end of the story that Frodo remains deeply wounded and cannot fully be healed. Um, so no, everything sad isn't just coming untrue. It feels like that to Sam in that moment when he sees Gandalf return. Um, but but anyway, it's 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 not just that's not what it means for everything to work out to the good that everything is going to be happy. And again, if you if you need evidence of that, here's Turin Turambar. Uh, who has a happy ending in this story? Nobody, nobody in this story has a happy ending at all. And so if you just look at it from that level, Dave, exactly as you say, you've got, you know, Findua lost Pindua tree. How's that working out for you, right? You've got, you know, Neonor. Hi, you're bearing the child, you know, the incestuous love child of your brother. Um, and then you commit suicide. How's that working out for you? You know, you've got Turin who, you know, I mean, you know, he's messing up all over the place. Um, needless to say. For whom does this story end well? Even Mablung, one of the only living people left at the end of this story, is, is himself a tragic figure with my own tidings. I have caused the death of one that I loved. Um, nobody has a happy ending. Um, <laughs> Mike nominates the sword. Yes, 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 true, true. Gorthang, uh, Gorthang has a happy ending. Well, no, not really. Gorthang almost, uh, uh, almost commits suicide himself. Um, anyway, so. Uh so so no no nobody has a happy ending at the end of this story. So obviously looking around it is not the case. Clearly in this story Tolkien is not saying things just come right. Things just you know come around to good um you know and there's Finnduilas a tree saying this is awesome this is the happiest ending I could possibly. But but there is a larger framework outside of that. And You know, and that's the thing which is hard to see. And I think, you know, it's one of the things for me which is really remarkable about this story and about Tolkien's telling of this story. Um, and that is, and that is that, um, he doesn't, it is so unrelentingly tragic, this story. We don't even get one character. We don't even get, you know, like thinking about, uh, thinking about Hamlet, somebody was just, uh, oh yeah, Jason was just referring to Horatio. Um, we don't even get like a Fortinbras character who comes in and at least like, well, at least, at least one guy makes good in this story. Um, we don't get any of that. Um, this this story is completely unapologetically tragic. Um, and yet, to kind of look, you know, glance ahead to one of the questions I wanted to ask at the end of the story, and yet the elves love this story. This is the longest of all of the stories. That is, you know, they they take more time on this story than on any other story that they tell. There is something that is important about this. Um, and I think that that's, I, I I think that basically to, 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 to answer this question, I don't know that we're going to do it simply here tonight, but I think that if you want to understand better, what Tolkien means by that. If you want to understand how tragedy works, the importance of tragedy, how it is that again, to use the, a phrase from the field of Cormallan, um, in the narrator's description of the singing of the bard um, at the field of Cormallon when they're all celebrating, um, when he says that uh, that that you know they're all kind of transported to the place where tears are the very wine of blessedness. If you want to understand how tears can become the very wine of blessedness, here's where you've got to do it in the story of Turin Turambar. This is the this is the test case. Um, now, Nick, go ahead.
7: Okay. I, I apologize if I repeat anything. I was just disconnected a few times. I um, wanted to bring it back to the eyes of Laram just for a minute. Um, there's this passage in the Children of Hurin, um, the chapter the journey of Morwen and Nienor," when she when Nienor is confronted on the hilltop. And it reads, and, and there, right before her, was the great head of Glaurung, who had even crept up from the other side. And before she was aware, her eyes had looked into the fell spirit of his eyes, and they were terrible, being filled with the fell spirit of Morgoth, his master. So, so my question was, do we really think that the behaviors and attributes of Glaurung are only linked to his will, or do we think Morgoth is working more directly him um, again I apologize if you already
0: this yeah no 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 that's a good question um, and I think that well I guess what I would say about that is that um, I would read in that a reference to the kind of thing that we see in a couple other places with that 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 Morgoth does now and Sauron does it again later um, that they're sort of Spreading their own spirit out among their followers, that they invest their followers, um, with some of their malice and some of their power. Um, so I think that Glaurung is kind of, you know, I don't know what, like, supercharged in some way with the will, with the will and the malice of Morgoth, but I don't think that we necessarily are supposed to read that as if, you know, Glaurung were this, like, you know, remote controlled drone that Morgoth is operating through from a distance. That does not seem that does not seem really to fit. And I think one of the places where we can see that most clearly is what Glaurung does in Nargothrond. Um, that is, once he has accomplished the errand of his master and he's sacked Nargothrond and he has, um, and he has, you know, messed with, messed with Turin, then, um, he piles up all the treasure of Nargothrond and sits on it. Uh, in other words, he does, he does his dragon thing. And what seems to be a self-indulgent thing that he does, um, and so I, I think that to me is seems to be relatively clear evidence that he and he ceases to work together with the orcs, and so he chases all the orcs away and won't let them take any of the spoil and keeps it all for himself. Um, and I think here that we can see Glaurung acting pretty clearly as a um, as a free agent. Um, <clears throat> so I think that uh, that Morgoth's spirit is just kind of enhancing him rather than actually controlling him remotely. Uh, Mike, you had something you wanted to say earlier.
4: If we're going to dive deeper into why do the elves love this story so much, if not, I'll wait till later on in the chat when we get
0: to that. Well, we've brought it up. Why don't we go ahead and talk about it? We can okay, always come back okay. to it.
4: Well, my my view is that the elves, are, you know, read and retell the story since I I feel like they're fascinated and curious about how they might respond if they were singled out for vengeance or torture by Morgoth in the way that Turin is singled out. And I kind of I interpret it as they retell the story the same way that we watch or you know watch a tragic drama because we want to see and rehear how someone responds under terrible circumstances. So for me, Elrond is mentioning Turin not because I don't know that he admires Turin as a classic you know capital H hero who's purely good. But more like, you know, he's a he's a he's a tragic hero or a tragic character who is forced to deal with impossible, terrible circumstances that I don't know if any of the elves would ever have to have to deal with, uh, or or certainly, uh, you know, the elves in the Lord of the Rings after Morgoth is is gone. I don't know. So for me, it was that's what I came up with. Why are they fascinated? They're fascinated by the Torin story in the same way that we're fascinated by tragic heroes and tragedies. We don't, uh, you know, we don't really admire Hamlet, but we're fascinated in watching and retelling how he deals with an impossible situation that none of us will ever be in, but it's, it's, it's we're, we're just drawn to it. So, but, you know, and on the other hand, if, if that's unconvincing to anyone, and and I'm not totally convinced by that, then that still leaves me with that same sense of frustration that other readers and other members of the group have mentioned, which is it's hard, it's 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 a tough story because it's tough to figure out what is it about the story that, uh, that they keep retelling it and that Elrond refers to Torin uh, as one of the greats. So that's my two cents. So.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I mean I think that there is something there that you can see. Uh, Especially when you think of that, the trio that he cites, Baron, Hurin, and Turin. Um, Yeah, I mean, the three of them are, you know, great in the sense that they are certainly among the mightiest, possibly the three mightiest humans um, in the First Age, just as far as their like raw capabilities and stuff. But also... They are three people who were placed in really, really bad circumstances. And they respond, all three of them respond differently, though their circumstances are different too. Um, but, but yeah, you do have three people who are just being pounded on by Morgoth and, both of them, I mean, their stories are very different, and they go in different directions. Um, but yeah, that is certainly something—something uh, something that is true of all of their stories. These are not people who just, uh, um, you know, were great and who did like fun and constructive things. These are people who suffered, um, who suffered greatly, and I—that seems—that seems, in a sense, to matter. Um, Dave, go ahead.
5: There's a more pessimistic uh, possibility, which is that the elves, like the rest of us, uh, sometimes engage in Schadenfreude, <laughs> <laughs> uh, or maybe it's it's like watching a train track. They just can't look away. They right. just they're so fascinated by the horrendous uh, um, sequence of events that occur in this. They just they're just like I cannot believe how many horrible things happen to this guy and around this guy. It is pretty hard to. Uh, <clears throat> it is pretty hard to get over it. Um, yeah. No, I, I'm being somewhat facetious. <laughs> Although actually, I think to some extent that that's saying the same thing that, that, that um, you guys were just saying that that tragedy fascinates us, and and there's a lot of reasons for that. Some of it are positive things um, and some of it are negative that there's some part of some part of our attraction to tragedy is is sort of a, a schadenfreude and then also um, um, uh, you know a fascination with horrible things happening and um, you know what I mean? So, I mean, some of it's sort of lurid imagination and fascination, and then some of it is also um, a, a deeper, maybe more positive appreciation for tragic circumstances and folks that deal with tragedy.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I I, I agree with that. And there's one thing I'd add to that. But let me go on and let uh, let let Jack and then Laura talk. I don't want to I don't want to steal people's thunder here. I get accused of that all the time. Jack, go ahead.
7: Yeah. Well, what I would add to that is. Um, this is a chance for the elves to look at tragedy from a distance, you know, one step away. I mean, obviously there's been a ton of tragedy and sorrow in their history, and I think in some of
3: the texts you'll see that they're reluctant to look at it. Um, it's just too too tragic, too, it's too, too painful. But with Turin, you no, know, he's not an elf, he's a human. So they can look at it um, one step
7: removed.
0: Yeah, that's a great point, and very. Um, and I'm glad I let you say that before I said my thing. Cause that's very much the the direction I was thinking too. But Laura, go ahead. Uh,
3: sometimes I think uh, Turin didn't really need uh, Morgoth to be against him to really screw things up. So I think he he might have had a uh, a pretty bad string of luck, even if he hadn't had uh, Morgoth against him. But anyway, um, uh, I was going to say something. Similar to that, um, I think the elves are fascinated by the story, not just because it's tragic, but because uh, Turin was mortal. And uh, the other thing that that, uh, just occurred to me is, um, you know, since the elves are the ones writing the story, um, you know, uh, and sometimes the elves seem a little bit contemptuous of of mortals, so I wonder if if uh, some of that has sort of rubbed off on the story of Turin, you know, some some of how he's presented or some of his um, some of his decisions. You know, obviously, whoever wrote this story doesn't understand why he did some of the things he did, and and then we as readers don't understand it. But maybe some of that is is. Um, is because that's the elves not really understanding why he's doing something like that, and you know, and unlike the elves, Turin has a, a much shorter life. He doesn't have these thousands of years to work things out. He's got to make these split decisions, you know, and he doesn't have thousands of years of wisdom behind him either. So, so that was my thought on it.
0: Yeah, no, I, exactly. I mean, I think it, you guys are definitely thinking the same direction than I am there, and I think you know, Jack, to come back to the phrase that you used, and you know, that this is sort of tragedy from a distance. Remember that when we did the kinslaying, um, we don't get a full description of the kinslaying. You know, we're told that there is a song about the kinslaying, but we don't get it. Um, we, we move on from that pretty quickly. Um, it, it's like, as you say, Jack, like that tragedy is, is, is too close. This, this is a tragedy that they can bear to look at. And I think that um, I think that one of the things that we can see going on with and Turin, Bar. this is, I think, that it is exactly as Jack and Laura were suggesting, a racial difference. This is a human story. In fact, I think this is the most human story that we get. I mean, we, there are elves involved. Of course, you know, uh, we've got, you know, Thingol trying to help people and actually uh, at least attempting to do good things. Um, you know, we've got Beleg, of course, fantastic character who is, uh, you know, who is who is who is so good and so helpful and so faithful. You've got Mablung who's, you know, he's trying to do all he can and, um, and not ending up doing any good but that's not his fault. But all of the elves, even Finduilas and Gwyndor, are, are minor characters. This is a story about people. This is a human story. This is like the human story. This is like the tragedy of more of mortals. And I think that this is one of the reasons why it's appropriate that it ends with death, that it, that it ends with suicides like this. Um, this is not... Um, that's not something that, you know, that elves are gonna do in this way. Um, they don't understand this. They don't understand all the choices about this. They don't understand how this works. It's almost like this, this story is like, an encapsulation of the miseries of mortality. I've been joking around in uh in you know the announcements for these shows and everything that you know you know come and join us for the sum of all human misery. But it actually it is kind of like the sum of all human misery. Um you know we get we get these 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 glimpses of you know all of the 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 ways in which mortal life can be horrible. And it's not relieved, it's not fine, it doesn't turn out well. Nobody uh n- nothing is nothing seems to be redeemed um by the end of this um and so i think it does provide i think you know so my answer my simplest answer to why the elves are so fascinated by this story why they why this is the longest story is that you know this is for them it's like the case study of human beings um and turin therefore you know can become again certainly from that from that centric standpoint can become this Sort of the stand in for humanity. You know, human beings are like that. Remember, there was, you know, there was language about the race of men way back in the Ainawinda way that talked about them exactly like that. Um, that often men grieve are a grief to man way and remind them a lot of, 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 of Morgoth. Um, that's again, Turin is, um, uh, Turin is, I think, is in one sense anyway can be taken as something like a stand-in for all of humanity. Joe, go ahead. All right. Well, uh, all of a sudden this just made me think of
6: <clears throat> when, uh, Bayorn, uh, uh Bayorn Brown, I can't remember which one his name is, but he said there was a darkness by man that, you know, and we spoke spoken of man's original sin kind of, it just made me think of that. And, uh, this, this story just is made me think of I wonder how close or how many parallels there is to this as to what that story could have been. And uh it also makes me wonder Morgoth probably has a better understanding of men than almost anybody since you were I mean, they're obviously almost related in Manway's mind. Um I wonder how much Morgoth may have used that too. I mean just his slightly different understanding of men than other people. It's not really related to the story a whole lot, but it, I just thought.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I mean that there is yeah, yeah Beor, yeah, Bayor when he's talking about that that, that darkness behind them and to what extent Turin's story is like, um, you know, the story of whatever the original sin of humans was in, uh, in, in Middle Earth, they seem to have had one. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I do think that it's, it's similar to that and that you can see, uh, in Turin, in that sense as well, a kind of a profile of humanity, somebody who has the potential for good, um, who has great power to affect good, but often uses it wrong, gets, to, gets, uh, thrown off by his own pride, uh, at many different points in many different ways and on many different levels and ends up acting in ways which, um, you know, trying to seize control of his own destiny ends up binding him to his own destiny, and and ends up screwing things up for lots of people. Um, in, in a lot of ways, again, I think one can say, and that certainly elves, anyway, might say, "Well, look, there you go, humanity in a nutshell." Um, Elizabeth, go ahead.
3: Yeah, I was thinking that also. Maybe the the fascination that the elves have with this story is, um, I mean, is it, the humanity of Turin, but also the fact that through that humanity, a lot of Turin's decisions really led to, um, or in many ways at least started the downfall of the elves in the First Age. I mean, his decisions had huge consequences for the elves. And so um, it's also how his humanity and his tragedy impacted the elves and, and how that interaction had such a huge um, impact on their, on the, the future of the elves and um and their interactions with Morgoth and how Morgoth was able to, um, you know, really just to kind of overrun them and, and uh, be successful against them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. No, I mean, I think that that, I think that makes sense. I mean, I think that, um, because I mean, you're right. It's not like you can see that Turin's career is, I mean, if you just look at it objectively, Turin's career is clearly like a net loss for the elves. Um, uh, But yeah, no, I I mean, I think that that's, um, you know, they do, uh, they're clearly looking at it um, as more than just that. Um, okay, well, I don't want to get too caught up here. I, I, I wanted to come back and do this at the end anyway, but let's uh, let's get back to Neonor. We haven't uh, spoken all that much about Neonor. Um, what do you guys make of her? Are there any Neonor fans in here? This is, uh, you know, one of the most prominent female characters, certainly, that we've gotten in the Silmarillion that is among the mortals. We have uh, a little bit about Morwin. Of course, we ha- we we get a lot of Luthien. Not that she's mortal, but I mean, among among the children of Iluvatar. Laura, go ahead.
3: Well, uh, not so much about Nianor, uh particularly, but um, just that uh, Turin, um, unlike just about anybody else we meet, seems to forget Finduelis pretty quickly. I mean, it can't have been that long since she died, and. Um, you know, he finds Nanor on her uh, on her grave site, but that doesn't mean she's the same person.
0: <laughs> no, no. Yeah, yeah.
3: So I just thought that uh, you know that was another thing that that kind of struck me. It's like, wow, he he forgot this elf woman pretty quickly here, didn't he? And he takes up with somebody else.
0: So. <laughs> yes. So you know, okay, all right. I I, I I'll be tour an apologist here. He didn't have a relationship with Finduilas. She loved him, but remember, her whole response was, "You know, Turin doesn't love me, and 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 you know, neither shall he." Um, so it's not like he has abandoned his love for Finduilas. He never loved her in the first place. You know, there was uh, there was there was there was no commitment.
3: Didn't he love her sort of after the fact, though? Didn't he sort
0: of realize he loved her? Or he, see, I mean, he clearly sees her importance. You know, and I don't know. I mean, I, I, don't want to suggest that he's just being cold and calculating, like Gwyndor said. I must save her in order to save my own skin. So I don't care anything about Finduilas. I just want to save myself. I'm not. I'm not suggesting that necessarily. But you know, he appreciates the need, the importance of his rescuing. Find and maybe he does care about her clearly her and her death matter to him i mean you know his 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 relationship with her grave you know the fact that his 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 connection with that spot and his you know making sure that no orcs come nigh her grave and everything shows that it that it means something to him but I don't think maybe that... he
3: was yeah go ahead. maybe he was the only human man who didn't prefer elf women over <laughs>
0: yeah I guess I guess I mean you know he's, he's he's I guess Dave is Dave is being much less shy than I am about suggesting that Turin is just being uh, calculating on his own part there um but no I mean I I, I don't think at any point we see him i mean he he never seems to have a barren moment um that is you know either either when he meets her after she falls in love with him you know i don't think that this is i i i really don't think we're supposed to be reading his search for finduelas as now i realize that she was my true love all along and i don't know why i don't think that that's how he's seeing her i mean he he knows that it's important that he rescue her i think that there's a there's a sense in which um it's it, Here's, here, here here would be my, my response to, to Dave's cynical text messages here. And that is that it's more than just saving his own butt. Instead, what Findulas comes to represent for him is a chance to make some kind of atonement, a chance f- for some kind of redemption of his complete failure at Nargothrond. He knows that Nargothrond is his fault. He led them out into battle. Uh, he led them into destruction. He failed as a general. Um, He, through his building of the bridge and his refusal, flat refusal to listen to the messengers of Olmo, he allowed Glaurung into the place, and he knows that it's his fault that Nargothrond is sacked. Um, And then here is Finduilas, daughter of the king, the rightful king of Nargothrond, and she you know becomes like the chance, as I said, of redemption, you know that if if he cannot let her down, then in some sense, possibly even just a symbolic sense, he is still well not saved Nargothrond, but anyway, he's still done some good it, it hasn't been a Nargothrond hasn't been a complete loss um of course he does fail but uh but anyway, I think that that's 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 kind of where uh where I would go with that that she becomes for him. Almost a symbol of um, of the whole Elven people, you know, the, all of the people of Nargothrond that he failed, um, and so of course, therefore, it's kind of fitting that he fails her too, um, and that you know what he has left is is a barrow, is a is, is a funeral mound for Finduilas, but also like for all of Nargothrond too. Um, Jack, you've been very patient here.
7: I, I just want to say that you know, except for. Now yeah, the one niggling detail of Neonor being his sister, um, she was very good for him. He yeah, seemed to smooth out
3: his rough edges. He seemed to be uh, willing to give up war. You know, uh,
7: the one thing that drove him, that you know, put his past behind him, settled down. Even um, uh, she was very good in that sense.
0: Yeah, it's true. It's true. No, they're a great couple, except for that one. Uh, except for that one sort of, you know, niggling point. Um, yeah. No. No. It's. Um, and, you know, and that in itself, too, is, uh, is a sense in which, again, coming back to the point about, you know, the evil plans being, you know, sort of having, you know, a good outcome to them. Yes, it's true that sort of the final, most horrible aspect of Turin's tragic story is his inadvertent and unknowing incest with his sister. Um, but, you know, it's not just that but the outcome is not just tragic. I mean, I think that Jack is exactly right. Their relationship is a good thing. You know, and, and, and it like, you know, does it bring harm? Yeah, you've got the whole brand problem, and, and sure, stuff goes bad. But, you know, I think here, again, you can see some of the triumph of, uh, of their own attitudes in this. Look at one of my favorite moments in this whole story um is basically is uh, on page 223 this is Nianor's response when Glaurung gives his last speech um and i think that this is really i think this is really great so so i'm 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 going to read this uh you guys have been wanting more of my Glaurung voice uh so here it is okay page 223 Thereat Glaurung stirred for the last time ere he died, and he spoke with his last breath, saying, Hail, Nianor, daughter of Hurin. We meet again ere the end. I give thee joy that thou hast found thy brother at last. And now thou shalt know him, a stabber in the dark, treacherous to foes, faithless to friends, and a curse unto his kin, Turin, son of Hurin. But the worst of all his deeds thou shalt feel in thyself. Then Glaurung died, and the veil of his malice was taken from her, and she remembered all the days of her life. Looking down upon Turin, she cried, Farewell, O twice-beloved. Ah, Turin Turambar, Turin ambartanen master of doom by doom mastered, O happy to be dead. Then Brandir, who had heard all, standing stricken upon the edge of ruin, hastened towards her. But she ran from him, distraught with horror and anguish, and coming to the brink of Kabid on Aras, she cast herself over and was lost in the wild water. Now, okay, I think that one of the things to remember here, a couple of you guys in the text have been bringing up, um, have been bringing up. Oedipus which of course as we've been talking a lot about tragedy tonight uh and Oedipus of course rightly as Jason is reminding us uh Jason being our local uh 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 great books expert um that Oedipus is the classic tragedy is is Aristotle's perfect example of tragedy and I think certainly when we have this moment uh this moment again to use the Greek term this moment of anagnorisis when 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 the revelation happens and, uh, and Neonor finally now realizes that, uh, she has been, um, involved in incest with her brother. I think that it's really difficult not to be remembering the similar moment that happens near the end of Oedipus. And, And here I'm thinking not of Oedipus going and gouging his eyes out. Um, I'm thinking about Jocasta, his mom, um, who realizes that he, uh, you know, who realizes that, that, it, well, that, that she's, that she's been sleeping with her son. She realizes it quite a bit before Oedipus does, or before Oedipus really kind of admits it to himself, um, that he really knows what's going on. But I think that there's a really big contrast between the two. Jocasta runs away. She runs away from the truth. She runs away from the revelation, um, before the final, final, Revelation happens. The guy hasn't actually said the words, but she knows what's coming. She knows what he's going to say. And she flees the room, urging Oedipus to like stop listening and stop asking. And we're told, though this happens off stage, that she, you know, runs into her room screaming and hangs herself. Um, both of them go off and commit suicide. But again, I think that, I think that it is something that is, You can see something very important, I think, in the difference in their reactions. Instead of her response to the recognition that uh, that her husband is her brother, um, instead of, you know, screaming and clawing her face and pulling out her hair and just, like, running off in blind horror uh, to hang herself, instead, she has this really gentle and, in fact, tender response. Farewell, oh, twice beloved, which I think is the most beautiful sentence in this entire story. Farewell, oh, twice beloved. Basically, that she she loves her brother turin whom remember she's never met um she was born after he left um but she knows that she has a brother she has her whole life been hearing about her brother um and for a long time going in quest of her brother but she doesn't but she, so so anyway she but she loves her brother um in theory in principle and turin or excuse me Turinbar, as she has known him um she has met and known and loved and married, and she loves him too, and now she finds that they're the same person. And instead of of having that response of horror, uh, she recognizes the horror of it. She does in the end run distraught with horror and anguish. Um, you know, it's it's not that she's not upset by this, but there is that one in that first sentence. Farewell, O oh, twice beloved, um. There is this sense of, of of love triumphing, that, you know, this doesn't actually change anything completely. Um, this is not—this doesn't make the relationship between them just purely horrible, and she recognizes that. Um, you know, that you are now twice my beloved, and she recognizes— the tragedy, the, 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 the tragic irony of his name and his life, oh, you know, Master of Doom by Doom Mastered. Um, anyway, I, I, think, uh, I think that it's actually, it's actually pretty beautiful. Um, any other quick thoughts on that?
2: I just wanted to add in um, a brief connection to Antigone. I, I realized in the chat that there was uh, some discussion, you know, the X equals Y factor, and I, I don't mean to suggest that at all. But I heard you talking about um, Oedipus, I really remember going back to my old school days talking about um, Antigone and how she approached the whole execution sequence according to Sophocles. And um, when we have her death, it's basically in the act of basically doing something loyal to her kin. And while that's not really the case here, I, I think the same nobility and the same pedigree also could be compared. I'm not saying that Tolkien was inspired from this. His, his love was more so to Norse mythology. That's definitely plain. Uh, But, on the other hand, we have to recognize that the whole mood, as you were saying, is sort of different. It all depends on the way you look at it, and the way it's portrayed, especially in this version, um, in the Silmarillion, is that it doesn't seem to be portrayed as, as you pointed out, an act of desperation, but more so of a daring, foolish, and almost heroically portrayed, though it's... You know, of course you know, that's all debatable um, I just want your take on that because I remember going through the, um, the play this year where you know we were covering about Creon about Haman and other details where these characters were going through these same motions and this is you know the ending of both um, Antigone and here the traditional of Purin, both are, it's, it's very tragic but you know the realization I think which um, Neanor goes through here is in a process which is I would say very unique among a lot of fantasy literature today. I mean, I cannot name another book out there with the same amount of depth and of, you know, um, description of how these characters are undergoing these traumatic events. And it's not done in a way of, you know, there's a sudden realization of horror. She basically says, you know, um, you know, oh, happy to be dead twice beloved, as you said. Um, and I, I think the, the words twice beloved actually still ring true throughout the entire book. This is one ending where... You know, when she jumps off the cliff into cut up um, we do notice a moment in that section where Brandir
3: is horrified, but is she, you know, what what is her status
2: and her bravery in that sequence I think is most clearly portrayed. So that's yeah. just a little bit ticking moment.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, no, I... And I think that that's um I, I think that that's a really interesting connection. Um and I certainly just to address one of the first things that you said, um, I don't think that we have to apologize for making connections to, uh, to classical stories here. I think that often Tolkien people get a little bit carried away with that. Yes, it's true, of course, that he was very much influenced by the Norse stuff. You know, he loved Anglo-Saxon literature. He loved Old Norse literature. Those were the things that were really his passions. Um, and of course, the Turin story is based explicitly, um, very explicitly on on the Finnish story, uh, on the the character of Kulervo from the Kalevala. Yeah, all of that is true. Um, but he wasn't ignorant of the classics. I mean, we're talking about a guy who had studied and read so much Greek uh, that before he finished high school, essentially, he was able to do uh, long and extemporaneous speeches in Greek. Um, he, he had read you know all of the major latin and rome and 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 greek authors before he even went to oxford and read classics for two years um before shifting over to english so um, the, I, uh, Tolkien certainly knew all of these classical texts. Um, you know, he would have known Sophocles. He would have known Homer. Um, I guess sometimes he sort of see people will, like, if they want to make a connection to a, uh, to, to Homer, for instance, instead of to, to Beowulf or, uh, or, you know, to the, to, to, to the Eddas or something like that. Um, well, again, feel like, seem to feel like they have to apologize for that or something. I don't think that that's the case at all. Um, but, you know, I think that there is, there is definitely, um, there are definitely some, some similarities here. And I, I can't imagine that we're not supposed to be thinking, um, thinking of Sophocles at, at least a bit here. I, I'm, I don't want to comment too much on Antigone, mostly because it's been so many years since I read Antigone. I'm pretty, I'm pretty rusty, uh, on, on my Antigone. Uh, anybody else who's read it more recently than I who would like to, who would like to comment on that? Well, I would definitely like to think about that more myself, but I don't feel like I have too much to offer on that on that point at this time. Um yes, I teach Oedipus all the time, uh in one of my classes. I teach Oedipus uh the king at least once a year. Um but I haven't been around Antigone for a long time. Um but but I, I'm certainly uh open to that connection. I think it sounds it sounds very plausible. Certainly uh her character is in a sim- is certainly in a similar kind of position. Any other Neonor thoughts? What do you make of her just, just by way of strong female character? She is a strong female character. As I pointed out last time, um, we get a direct parallel to Eowyn here, rather a direct precedent or even almost foreshadowing um, of Eowyn here. Um, you get the woman who um, sneaks out and stows away, disguising herself as one of the male warriors, uh, you know, going on this dangerous mission. Um, you know, while there she confronts, you know, the 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 this great and powerful uh enemy. Does that doesn't work out so well for her as it does uh for Eowyn. Um and she does not you know, she doesn't kill Glaurung, she doesn't bring bring about his death, but uh um she is uh and I think that she is an interesting character. Even the the mo- the sort of the hesitation that she has um you know that we can see that there is some sort of that she has some kind of sense some kind of foreboding about the tragedy that is to come when she is saying no to turin um when, when he finally does come and uh and ask her to marry him um even though she loves him and has loved him since she first arrived in camp um but uh anyway i don't know um uh Alright, no, I don't, don't talk about Neonor more. We don't have to talk about Neonor more. We're, we're, running a little bit short on time anyway. Um, but what's, since we, uh, already mentioned, um, <laughs> no, Jordan, this is the last week on Tour Tour No, no, no more, one more week. Um, let's go ahead and talk about the suicides then, since we've already brought up Neonor's suicide. Um, what do you make of the suicides? Does, does, does this story suggest that the suicides are a good thing? Are we supposed to read them as a bad thing? Are we supposed to condemn Neonor uh, for committing suicide? Is that, is that, are, are we, I mean, it's awful in the sense of it's being horrifying, but uh, um, is, are, does she earn blame for this, do you think, Dave? Um, I think it's a, I think it's
5: a subtle middle ground between the two. I, I don't think, um, I, I sh- I'm sure that. Tolkien would be horrified if anyone accused him of uh, of condoning suicide and
0: I'm, I, obviously that can't be it it cannot be a good thing yeah and, I don't think uh, so
5: and, and I think the notion that and I and I think um, the the notion that that, that that there's some sort of redemption at the end because they managed to escape their the, you know morgoth's torment through death is skirting perilously close to the idea that committing suicide in this circumstance was a good thing um, uh, so uh, I think I would even disagree with your students paper to that extent um, at the same time I don't think that we're supposed to pass judgment I think we're just supposed to recognize the tragedy of the situation um, I, I think that's I, I mean I guess you if you wanted to pass judgment you could and um, and I imagine that if you were if you were forced to Tolkien would probably want you to pass to, to To you know, place blame because obviously suicide can't be a good thing. Certainly, wouldn't be compatible with his Catholic worldview. But I don't think we're supposed to pass judgment. I think we're just supposed to just. I mean, I think this was the nail in the coffin in terms of the tragedy. This was such an awful situation, and this is how it ended, and that's even more awful.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, even if you think about the uh, the the renaming of the place where um, where. Neonor kills herself, the name that it's given, kabed Nairamath, the leap of dreadful doom, um, certainly does, Dave, give that sense that you're describing. Um, not like the horrible leap of the very wicked person who killed herself, but rather like the person who, that, that was a really terrible destiny that was placed on her. Like the, 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 um, what is really memorialized there. It's not even her action itself necessarily, but the way in which that action was a response to this really quite horrible situation in which she was placed. Um, that certainly seems to be the emphasis there. Uh,
3: uh,
0: Laura, go ahead. Well, you basically just
3: said everything I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I just was going to say that it's, uh, you know, the, the feeling here is um, is of tragedy and of sorrow. Um, I don't think there's any sort of... Um, any sort of good feeling we're supposed to have about the suicide i mean there's there's another suicide in the film really and that's a little more questionable but here i think it's just it's just sad it's it seemed to me just to be very sad
0: yeah no i mean i think that it is um you know even when the way that the way that that, that brandier describes it um and uh you know when 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 he says you know Ni-Nio is gone Nemo, the beloved, is also dead. Um, that is, that is sad. That is, uh, you know, the emphasis there does seem to be on the tragedy. Um, and I certainly don't think we get very many cues from the narrative itself to be thinking ill of her for what she did. Um, I mean, I agree with Dave. I don't think we're supposed to be coming out of this saying suicide, two thumbs up, but, um, but i don't, it it, I, it doesn't seem like we get many condemnations of her even the whole the whole landscape around um seems to seems to mourn for her um and to and and just to sort of be kind of shuddering in response to the horrible things that have happened um, yeah joe what were you thinking all right uh, i'm not really trying to jump topics here so i'm still okay. really staying on this one i think um one response you can kind of see is
6: if you look forward a little bit uh She's not really with the memorial that's there later. I mean, uh, unless you count the sea as a memorial later, but, uh, I mean, she's not there. She's not a part of it. Um, She kind of did that herself, but it seems like maybe the way she did that and the way she handled it, I mean, it kind of plays along with what you guys were saying. Uh, It doesn't really condone it, but it's something else entirely. I just think that's sort of representative of how you can almost look at that because she's not there and you don't know what happened to her. It's, uh, It's just kind of a different way that
0: I looked at it. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that the, the loss of her, the, the the emphasis on nobody knowing where she lies and sort of the loss of her body, that she has been cast away, she cast herself away um, and has been lost, um, is, uh, is I think, does kind of point to, is another way of pointing to the particular tragedy of her suicide. Dave, go ahead. Well, not to steer the drag conversation in two different directions but uh I, I would like to
5: register that i do not feel quite the same about turin suicide right uh, i find neanor sort of it mostly by tragedy i find turins to be yet another poor decision in a long list of poor decisions by turin turin mark
0: well uh, that i think is interesting uh that's certainly you can make that point um I mean, the the one thing that I've said, and I've said that, I've said it a couple times before, so I'll just repeat it here again. Um, the, for me, one of the big differences between their two deaths is that Turin's, Turin doesn't just kill himself. Um, the, I, the, Turin's death sounds to me more like a trial. You know, that he sort of, he sort of puts himself on trial and, you know, the jury is his sword <laughs> itself. Um, you know, that he uh he draws his sword and addresses it Hail Gorthang, no lord or loyalty dost thou know, save the hand that wieldeth thee, from no blood wilt thou shrink. Wilt thou therefore take Turin Turimbar? wilt thou slay me swiftly? Now it's he's not asking for judgment there. He's just saying, Hey, will you promise to kill me? But the sword's answer is I think. In a different, in different terms. Yea, I will drink thy blood gladly. I have no idea, by the way, what a sword's voice should sound like. I guess if I were actually dramatizing the voice, I would, I would make it whisper. I don't think it could possibly speak in more than a whisper. But, uh, anyway. Yea, I will drink thy blood gladly, that so I may forget the blood of Beleg, my master, and the blood of Brandir, slain unjustly. I will slay thee swiftly. Um, so I think, yeah, I, what he points out, he, he points to two murders that Turin has committed with him. Beleg's death and Brandir's death. The first person that Turin ever killed with this sword and the last person that Turin has killed with this sword. And um, and both of them being terrible acts of so, injustice. Go ahead. The, so, But
5: the, the thing to keep in mind here is this is a sword that Beleg was warned against uh, yep. very early on by Melian. So... To some extent i I think I see and i, I don't know if this is the point you are making because I'm interrupting you, but um, <laughs> I, I think I see what you're saying that to some extent, this death does bore bear a lot of resemblance to an execution it's almost capital punishment as right. much as it is suicide right. and i and I think that we shouldn't interpret we shouldn't interpret this story in a modern way where we think of a sword as an inanimate object uh and so that this is entirely Turin just throwing himself on a sword. But the sword seems to play an active role in this. But we were warned against this sword very early on by Melian, that it was a it was, you know, sort of that it was treacherous and perilous, uh, and a little bloodthirsty. And so just because the sword judged Turin as deserving of death doesn't necessarily mean that Turin was deserving of death. You know, it could be that if this was an entirely just sword, it would have said um you're not getting off that easy torin um you know as 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 recompense for all of your crimes you have to um, you know, be like Cain and wander the earth and, and try to do good and um, help the the weak and you know, pay for your sins. Not just like, okay, sure, I'll kill you. I'll you know, I'll I'll execute you and and uh, and then you die. You know, not having even tried to make up for all the bad things that you've
0: done. But just imagine how many more lives Torin would have destroyed had he gone around trying to help the helpless and right wrongs. <laughs> well, that's entirely possible. <laughs>
5: <laughs> but i don't think i personally i refuse to accept that he was completely irredeemable you know like i don't think i i don't i'm not i don't i don't accept Turin's interpretation of himself that he's a guy with a black rain cloud falling him around and that bad things just happen wherever he goes no matter what he tries. I really do think that if that he's the sort of guy that if he could have had a qualitative change of character inside, like, you know, recognize his limitations, stop giving in to pride, you know, change his ways that, that maybe just maybe he wouldn't have missed been. That the, I, I, I really do think at the end of the day that the, the balance tips in, in the direction of his responsibility for the bad consequences. And so if he could have recognized that and made some changes, maybe just maybe things wouldn't have gone so bad for him. But he doesn't even try here. Yeah. He Doesn't ever, um, uh, you know, he doesn't recognize that possibility. He just gives up and kills himself, or gives himself up to die.
0: Yeah. No. And I, I agree. And I would, I, I, would also agree about the point that you made about the sword. Though I think it's not, it's not that the sword is unjust. Uh, it's just, it's that it's merely just. That is, I think what the sword lacks is not justice but mercy. Um, and certainly mercy is what Turin is not shown here. Um, and that I think is. Uh, uh, And, and, and you're right. I don't think that Turin is unredeemable. Um, and the sword goes along with him. Um, you know, the sword, you know, he asks the sword, you know, will you execute me? And the sword says, yes, sure, I will execute you. That's what I do. Um, and also points out, and by the way, you deserve it. Um, and I love the, uh, I mean, the other thing that, you know, there are two things to remember in the back history of the sword. One is that this is the sword of Aeol the Smith, and we're told the warning you know, that Dave was alluding to, um, the warning that is given to, um, to Beleg is, you know, uh, it's what Melian tells him, there is malice in this sword. The dark heart of the smith still dwells in it. It will not love the hand it serves, neither will it abide with you long. Um, so, The dark heart of the smith still dwells in it. Does that mean that it's literally Aeol's spirit and Aeol's voice that's speaking through the sword? I don't think so. He's dead. And I don't think that his spirit is actually animating the sword exactly. But, um, but I think, you know, Dave, you know, in what you're saying, I come back to the, um, to that line. It will not love the hand it serves. Um, There certainly does not seem to be any warm and fuzzy thoughts towards Turin on the part of the sword, whom, remember, he has been identified with. He is the Mormegil, the black sword. Um, He has taken his name or been given a name after this sword. Um, And yet, um, the sword clearly does not love him and in the end shows him justice without mercy. Um, And does he deserve death? Sure. Yeah. As Gandalf says, many that live deserve death. And Torin's clearly one of them. He's done pretty, lots of pretty bad. I mean, killing Brondir in a fit of pique was pretty bad. But goodness, that's like nothing compared to many of the other things he's done. Um, but, uh, but anyway, yes, I think that, you know, clearly he deserves death. Clearly it's ju- clearly it's just, but, but no, it's not merciful. And is he redeemable? Yeah. I think he might be redeemable. Um, Mike, go ahead. You wanted to, I, th- I probably stole your thunder again, but. I was just going to ask the question about the final statements he makes
4: to where he says uh, um, a curse upon your errand, a curse upon Doriath. Are we meant to, to read that and think, okay, at this point he's kind of gone, he's sort of losing or lost his mind for saying those things. Um, What is, or, or is that, or is he, you know, is he aware of what he's doing, and he, he is just uh, so I, I don't know. I, I, I was wondering what your thoughts are on how to read that that those final words to mablong Because to me, it says the words of Glaurung are fulfilled in him, and he laughed as one fay. We talked about Faye being sort of crazy. Mm-hmm. So is he cra- is he crazy at that point when he curses Doriath and Mablong's Aaron?
0: Uh, yeah. uh, Um, well, yes, yes, he is, uh, he he is kind of losing it. I mean, that is what, that is what Faye means, that he's, he's, he's going willingly to death. Um, but, you know, the thing to remember about that line, Doriath is going to be cursed. Uh, next week, next week, I repeat when we move on from Turin Turinbar, we will get to uh what happens with Doriath, and we will see that Doriath is in fact going to be cursed and going to be cursed through what Turin has brought about um, you know Turin is going to be uh kind of indirectly instrumental in the fall of Doriath too um, so I, I I do think that that's um, it 's interesting to 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 remember this when we get there, um, that certainly there's, um, uh, there's certainly some kind of, uh, uh, I mean, does this curse actually have efficacy? Does it work? Um, or is it, you know, just sort of a coincidence and, Hey, lots of horrible things are going to happen anyway, one way or the other. Um, I don't know, but I do think that, uh, um, I do think that we are supposed to remember that, (laughs) <laughs> that, that Turin has cursed it. And remember Glauron saying that you are a curse on everything that you're connected with. Uh and that does that does include Fingal too. Um yeah, I don't know. I mean but again, I mean is he is he crazy? Oh oh yeah. Oh yeah he's he's uh he's losing it by then. But I don't think by the way that you know we're supposed to think that his sword talking to him is an expression of him being crazy. Uh I I, I do think his sword is legitimately talking to him. Um and yes, yes, Laura, you're right. Thingol will also be instrumental more than indirectly in the fall of Doriath. We'll get to that next week. I, I, I don't want to open too much about the fall of Doriath. We'll, we will, we will have a whole week, one whole week on the fall of Doriath next week. But, uh um, but just at, you know, Turin is kind of anticipating it there. Dave,
7: Um one thing I wanted to
5: add about, uh, about all of these. Uh, topics we've discussed uh, suicides executions um the sword Turin is uh i would like to point out that they are uh um they're breaking gandalf's golden rule about dealing in death and judgment which which i think i think it's fair to say that that um that that, that statement from from um uh, fellowship of the ring i think we're i think it's not unreasonable to to apply that broadly to to a lot of tolkien stuff that that, that is that that is, a, that is a definitive statement of the good in that world um, uh, and maybe somehow we can connect that to nienna and and her role in things but but i do think that that's that's part of why the sword is so perilous and and part of why as you said, that, that, that it was merely just, but it wasn't truly, deeply just. Um, because, it, it, you know, like the, it, that's its solution to, to, to Turin's wrongdoing, well, I'll just kill you. Um, uh, I, I don't know, I just think that's interesting, that the, the all of these acts here at the end, uh, and even Turin's sort of knee-jerk response to any situation, for example, killing Brandeer, are all blatant violations of um, what I'm calling Gandalf's Golden Rule.
0: Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, I, I, you know, does this mean that in Tolkien's world, capital punishment is always wrong? I don't necessarily think so. It was, you know, was, uh, was Turgen wrong to execute Ale, for instance? I don't know. I don't think so necessarily. Um, but it's, but it's, but it's tricky. So I, I I'm, I'm a little bit hesitant to, uh, to say that it's, Obviously, true that capital punishment is always wrong in Middle Earth, but certainly, um,
5: I, don't, I don't think I don't think it's. I would say it's always wrong, but I but I do think that that a um, an individual or an object that that operates in a simplistic way in those situations, I think it's fair to say that that is wrong, and in that case, that's why the sword is wrong. Because it because it literally it does exactly what Gandalf says not to do. It deals in death and judgment. That's exactly what it does. In fact, that's in many ways you might say that's what it's designed to do. That is right. its nature. And I think that's why Melian was warning Beleg against it in a lot of ways. That it it doesn't actually have loyalty to um, uh, to a uh, to the user to the wielder. It is merely an instrument of death and judgment.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um. Right which is uh probably why it's not a great idea to go to it for advice, especially when you're feeling fay um but yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's um yeah, certainly it is not surprising um that the sword, which has the dark heart of its of its uh of its maker in it um is going to be breaking that rule, Mike, go ahead, To you on Dave's comment. I like it very much about Gandalf's golden rule, and i
3: Kind of picked up on that similarly when I was thinking about Turin's
4: final confrontation with the dragon versus Gandalf's co- confrontation with the Balrog. And in Turin's conver- confrontation, what comes through is he's thrusting his sword with his strength and also with his hatred, and there's taunting and mockery that's involved in Turin's attack on the dragon, whereas Gandalf's sort of battle with the Balrog. There's no taunting, there's no mockery. You don't get any sense that he's, uh, you know, acting out of hate. And so I I kind of picked up on that theme a little bit uh, as well. And, you know, it comes through that Torin, you know, in his final confrontation with this, you know, evil character, uh, you know, is is vengeful and mocking and taunting, whereas, uh, you know, Gandalf, who is not a Human being is is of a, a higher class of um, character uh, behaves differently. So just another, I, just, I I felt like you could you could set those two battles against each other and compare how Turin behaves to how Gandalf behaves to sort of you know find illustrate how each of those characters is different.
0: No, I think that that's a great that's a great illustration, um, and it's certainly because you're right. A big part of what brings about the tragedies which occur afterwards is the fact that he goes up and taunts it and pulls his sword out, you know, while the dragon is still alive there. Um, you know, if, if, if he leaves well enough alone, um, you know, then the final stages of the tragedy don't happen. So, um, so yeah, certainly we can see his pride. Um, even the way that he feels like he has to go and throw, Glaurung's own words back at him right when he he taunts Glaurung with the words with which he taunted him earlier on um yeah uh, Gandalf does not act like that um and I think that that is a good illustration Laura what were you going to say
3: You know I was thinking of another uh, quote from Gandalf that applies to Turin, and that's um and I'm going to paraphrase here cuz I don't remember exactly but he's talking about um, uh, I think Frodo's lamenting that he's he's living in these bad times, and and Gandalf says all we can decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And um, you know, if you think about Turin, uh, we have to ask ourselves did did he did he really uh, do well with the time that was given to him? You know, I, I mean, he did do he did do a good thing to kill Glauron, but um, many of the other decisions he made were were not uh, the wisest decisions. So he could have used Gandalf as a mentor, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some more time hanging out with Nienna might have been just the thing. Um, but no, I, I, I think that, uh, yeah, no, I think that that's certainly right. And um, But again, you know, to keep in mind, the times that he, you know, the, the time that he was given was a crappy time. I mean it was really bad. Um you know going back to some of the t- things about tragedy we were talking about before and um
3: so was so was the time Frodo was given too but look at how he responded. Yes. He responded in a, in a different way. Of course he's a completely different
0: personality than uh than Turin. Yeah. No it's true. It's true. Um but but yeah, I mean I think I don't know. I don't think that uh I mean, Frodo in general, I don't think, has it quite so bad as Turin. But again, this that's where I come back to that list that Elrond gives, you know, Beren and Hurin and Turin, not just the three greatest. I mean, all three of those get superlatives. I mean, Beren is probably like the all-around, um I mean, you know, if if you were going to pick uh, one of the mortal men from the first Age, you know, to be on your team on the playground, you probably pick Baron first. Hurin, we're told is the mightiest, we're, we'll be told this in the next chapter, is the mightiest human warrior ever to live. And Turin, we know is the, is the, you know, the, 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 the most beautiful, but he's also, I mean, he's like the most fan like he's one of the greatest in stature and skill. And we were talking about before about how it's impossible for him to hide because he's so good at everything. Um, you know, that he is, he, he clearly has all of these amazing abilities. But again, but, but there's more than that. Those three characters are also three which are put in the most horrible circumstances that any human beings are put in. And, um, you know, they don't all respond the same. They don't all respond always well. But, um, but anyway, I think that that's, um, Turin's situation is, I think, is the worst of all of them. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think we, we, it's, you know, no question, not trying to argue that Turin didn't make lots of really horrible decisions, but, um, but it's pretty bad. Just think of this. If, if Turin had been in
3: Frodo's position when he came across Gollum, he would have just killed Gollum.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Are you kidding? If Turin were Frodo, he 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 would have killed Sam. (laughs) Yeah, really. And then the ring would never... Been destroyed, so it's <laughs> yeah. he didn't have that. Yeah, yeah, no, clearly, clearly, it's hard. Yes, to, I, but perhaps, 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 Turin. If he had had Frodo's upbringing in the Shire, he might not have been Turin at all. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, there's there's no. It, I mean, it's true to remember, and that's what I was thinking principally, when I was thinking of the contrast between, like, or rather how much, how much less bad, um, in one way of looking at it are, are, Frodo's times from, from, from Turin's times. And he doesn't have, think of all of those times when Frodo is talking about the firm foothold in the Shire and how it will, you know, it will be easier for him and his journey knowing that somewhere, um, you know, the Shire still exists safe and comfortable behind him. Um, Turin has nothing like that. What he has, uh, is, um, you know, this, this wrecked home and, you know, desolate kingdom that he is supposed to be king of, um, and knowing that his mom and sister are back there under persecution and possibly being dead, possibly in chains. Remember the, 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 the lies that Glaurung tells him, um, are perfectly plausible. And for all he knows, they are right. Um, uh, Glowring is exactly right to say that while he has been, you know, being treated like a prince among the elves, um, his family are back home, um, you know, in misery and want and rags. Um, anyway, so, uh, so, you know, hard comparison to make, but, um, but, but I do think that, uh, that in this case, Turin's, Turin is put in kind of a no win situation, you know, so we have to, we have to balance that with the fact, that, I mean, he does, in the midst of that, make lots of really bad decisions. Um, but I don't know that, uh, that yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure exactly how much better he could have done in some ways. But Jack, go ahead.
7: Yeah, I just wanted to give a last defense of uh, Turin um, before we wrap up. It's just or perhaps a defense of the Elves that had so much faith in, faith in him also. So I think in the Elves, I think they saw his vast potential, obviously. Now, you know what he could have become um, uh, to the elves and to the humans and, and to the war on Morgoth. And I guess the question is, can a selfish person, and that was his, his one um, Achilles heel, This is selfishness, he can't see beyond himself. Can a selfish person uh, become selfless? And I think they can. They need that one moment of enlightenment. And I think it's happened with many people. Um, I think the darker your history, the more likely it can happen. And I think the Elves perhaps and and illustrated through Belich were waiting for this to happen and hoping for it to happen. And it just didn't happen. It didn't have time to happen. So that's my defense of i or excuse me, of Turan and the Elves.
0: Yeah, and then you get back to Dave's point of, you know, what if instead of seeking justice he had you know, he had received mercy, um, there at the end, you know, and could could that have been a moment instead of instead of a moment of despair um to have been a little bit more like his dad responded when everything looked worst um you know and this um is the you know, sort of the last note that i would want to end on i remember i think it was when i was when i taught my Tolkien class that i recorded for the podcast uh, that i first noticed this i had always missed this before when i had been reading this um that is the last thing that turin says to mablung um Right after, Mike, the passage you were referring to earlier, and a curse too upon your errand, this only was wanting. Now comes the night. And I think very clearly we're supposed to be hearing in that this reverse echo of Hurin's final words as he's standing there with all of the men of his house slain around him, the last living man on the battlefield of the Nirnaith Arnoidiad, um, knowing that he is going to be overcome, knowing that he's going to be taken back to Morgoth, crying out day shall come again every time he slays one of his enemies um the that that image of stubborn hope in the midst of what seems like a situation of absolute despair and then his son turin in this final moment saying now comes the night um instead of day comes again um so uh, you know the day shall come again and so, so, uh, you know, Jack, this is just as much as to say I agree, you know, that that's where Turin goes. Turin is essentially in the end there. I, I don't want to make it sort of worse than it is, but he's sort of embracing or accepting the darkness instead of fighting it. Um, yeah, Mike, as you say, he is, he is defeated in that moment and he is, he is accepting defeat. Um, he is submitting now. To the doom that he is, he has been trying to fight against. And, you know, we've been looking at ways in which his fighting against his doom was futile and, and, and pointless and in some ways a bad idea. Um, certainly ex- taking the name to himself of Turimbar, Master of Doom, not such a good idea. Um, but yet, just accepting that and saying, yes, I realize I'm cursed. I realize everything is horrible. Everything is going to be horrible and there is no hope and there is no option. um, Isn't, isn't the right call that he does give up hope there and he doesn't. um I think that's the moment, Jack, where we can see him sort of finally turning away from, you know, and, and, and not having that moment that you were describing um, where he could have turned and he could have turned it around. Um, And that, that I would say is sort of you know to to go along with Laura, which you said a while back that his suicide is in that sense very much um is sort of the last poor decision that Turin makes, but this is the that's the moment I think where he makes it uh now comes the night, um as you say, Laura, it is heartbreaking um that's um just as I find uh Neanor's line um you know farewell o oh, twice beloved um to be the most beautiful line in the whole story now comes the night uh, i find the the most the, the the saddest that that is that is you know for me that sentence that short sentence again um thinking about this from a style time angle mike you see you know the way in which i love the way in which tolkien deploys his his little simple sentences um you know so often the most powerful moments in Tolkien are where we get these little these little short sentences, farewell, O oh, twice beloved. Now comes the night. Um that for me really sums up the, you know, the final and ultimate tragedy of Turin Turinbar. Um, and as I said, it's 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 um it is un it, it is unwavering, unapologetic tragedy. Um Tolkien does not hold back in this story. Um and I think it was a really interesting choice to end it here. Um, uh, You know, for, for Christopher to end the story here um, and, you know, and, and start with a new chapter on the next bit. Um, You know, the, uh, the, the, to end just with the description of their tombstone um, and the reference to, uh, nor was it ever known whither the cold waters of Tegelin had taken her, that has taken Neonor's body. Um, uh, yeah, really, really powerful stuff. And on that, very sad and depressing note. We shall end our third and final week of discussion of Tour and, Tour and Bar. Um See, I told you at the beginning when we were shooting for two weeks originally, one of the points was that it was too depressing to spend three whole weeks on. Um, so anyway, I hope that I hope that everyone... Uh-oh, Mike just burst into tears here. I hope everyone's going to be able to make it. Uh, you know, I hope... Uh, uh, <laughs> we See, we totally should have had a buddy system for this last week here. You know, make sure everybody's going to be okay. Um, at least Jordan's got his pick so that's all right. Um, anyway, so uh, next week, um, on to more, on to more destruction, on to more, uh, 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 on to more uh, downfalls and ruin. Uh, so, uh, so thanks everybody for joining us. Thanks everybody uh, on the Middle Earth Network Radio for listening with us and for being patient through our technical difficulties at the beginning. And uh, we will uh, continue the downward slide of the first age of Middle Earth next week. Good night, everybody.
1: Congratulations on finishing this most tragic of tales. I think a pat on the back and a night out with friends may be in order now. Please continue to join our group as we work through this wonderful work called The Silmarillion. Until next time, this is Joe Stoll. Take care, everybody.
0: Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.